In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You are advised that any view expressed by the host or their guest are not necessarily the views of the owners or management of Toginet Radio, Togi Entertainment, or the Owners Group, Inc. It's time to get happy. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen. A fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness because happiness is a choice. And happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Hence the name of the show, Harvesting Happiness. Lisa's going to shine a light on the well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. And as a filmmaker, psychologist, author, professor, and motivational speaker specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cypress-Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. In the show, she'll also focus on military families, service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and civilian life reintegration issues. So let's get to it. Harvesting Happiness on Togginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm here today to speak with you as I am about every Wednesday about happiness, well-being, and human flourishing. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, the achievement of a happy life is not only good for us, but for those around us. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to the collective flourishing of humanity on a global level. In short, happiness matters. It comes from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. Before we bring on our guest today, I wanted to open up the phone lines for call-ins at 877-864-4869, 877-864-4869. And you can add a one in front of that if you might be calling in from Europe because our guest today is from the United Kingdom. You can also connect with us on Facebook at Harvest- Harvesting Happiness. And you can come on to Toginet on the Internet and log into our chat and ask your questions here. Um, before we get into today's interview, I wanted to let people know where in the world I am today because I love to share the crazy places I get to uh, spread the joy in. I am at the Sundance Resort in Sundance, Utah, where we are preparing for an upcoming Harvesting Happiness for Heroes workshop in the fall to work with warriors who have served our country and their spouses who are dealing with the fallout of combat stress. So I want to give a shout out to my friend Jared Christensen, who is down the mountain as I'm up here in my cabin, looking out at the trees and the mountains and the beautiful sunny skies. I also wanted to follow up on the Veterans Preservation Corps, uh, in which I am involved. Harvesting Happiness for Heroes works with an organization that helps retrain our veterans to restore old buildings in preservation arts. So we had our graduation last week. We're continuing on with a new session of folks. And uh, we'll be online with uh, that website shortly. You can connect with me at www.hh4heroes.org. And I am delighted to bring on today's guest. His name is Robert Roland Smith. 
He is a philosopher. He is a writer. He writes nonfiction that applies philosophy, psychoanalysis, and literature to the concerns of everyday life. He has written Driving with Plato, The Meeting of Life's Milestones, Breakfast with Socrates, The Philosophy of Everyday Life, and these are just two examples. So we've got Robert with us from the United Kingdom. He has a cold, but he swears it will not interfere with his humor, and we like that because we're all about the humor as well as the joy. So good afternoon to you, Robert, and welcome. Hi, thanks very much for having me. No, uh, it won't interfere with my humor, but it might interfere with my happiness a bit, but uh, I hope that's okay. (laughs) Well, if it's your happiness and not ours, it's really okay. No, that, I'm yeah. just kidding. That's just wrong of me to say. I wanted to uh, read a little something from Breakfast with Socrates that uh, amused me, and it amused me, and it also made me pause. And you write in Breakfast with Socrates, if it's true that the unexamined life is not worth living, instead of waiting for a lecture on the subject, why not examine it in the moment? After all, the everyday is 99% of our lives. If we don't think about it while we live it, there's not going to be much time left over for the reflection. And if we do, we might learn to appreciate the importance behind the apparently trivial things we do so automatically, like getting dressed or falling asleep, and see them in a new light. Yes, what very wise words, eh? Very, 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 very sage words. And this is really your essence. I mean, this is what you you love to do and share. And so I'm just going to let you ramble with that. Teach us about being mindful to everyday life. Yes, well, uh, I was thinking about a poem by Philip Larkin, who's an English poet um, who uh, was writing the later part of the 20th century, mainly. And there's a poem by him called Days. And... uh, the first line is, uh, what are days for? He says, days are where we live. And I think this um, point about days is very important because all of our lives take place on a Monday, Tuesday, or a Wednesday, or a Thursday, or a Friday, or a Saturday, or a Sunday. And indeed, all of world events, uh, you know, whether it's warfare, famine, cataclysm, political change, economic crisis, you know, they will happen, they will be triggered on a Thursday afternoon or a Saturday morning. You know, the day is really the context the atmosphere, for everything that takes place. And yet we don't spend much time thinking about days per se. And uh, at a more personal level, uh, the day is the format for absolutely everything we do. So I think, um, you know, part of my project in writing Breakfast with Socrates and Driving with Plato is to get us to see that fact that life takes place within a day. And so thinking about the day helps us to think about our lives more broadly. And uh, that in turn does go back to this idea that's often attributed to Socrates, which is that the unexamined life is not worth living. And it, I mean, you think about the opposite of that. Um, think about you know what it would be to live a completely unexamined life if you just went through the, your day without thinking. You'd just be sort of sleepwalking through it, wouldn't you? And I think uh, the problem with that is that means your life is less rich because we do have the capacity for thinking and reflecting. And secondly, I think it makes you sort of vulnerable as well. If you don't reflect on your life, you lose a critical faculty, you lose some critical distance. And that, I think, makes you vulnerable to other people who might want to manipulate you or um, indoctrinate you and so on. So this this notion of self-reflection, I think, is 
is absolutely key. Now, some people might argue that self-reflection is self-indulgent, that it's vain, that it's narcissistic. I'm sure there are some dangers associated with that. But I think um, you know, non-self-reflection is a kind of emptiness, and so it's something uh, we should avoid. Well, th there is a difference between being self-reflective or self-honoring and self-caring and selfish. And I think yes, exactly. that that's the distinction that is important to clarify, that when one takes a moment to pause about the cause and effect of one's actions, you're yeah. actually thinking about how you're impacting your world in a selfless way. Yes, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, there is a difference between self-interest and self-reflection. And self-reflection, I think, is one of the um, kind of greatest gifts that we have. I mean, according to another strain in philosophy, self-reflection is something that separates humans from other beings, <coughs> excuse me, from other beings on the planet. As far as we know, and maybe we'll be proved wrong at some point, as far as we know, you know, animals don't reflect on their own condition. Um, I mean, maybe there are some particularly sophisticated animals that do, but, I mean, it's a classical distinction in the history of ideas that human beings have that capacity. So, in other words, reflecting on yourself and uh, the meaning of your life and so on is one of the things that actually makes you human. You know, it's a capacity that's a rare gift in some ways. So not to use it, I think, is um, a terrible loss, and that is different from just... Uh, self-interest indeed. Let's talk for a minute the difference between uh, being self-reflective and thinking too much. You know, when one overthinks uh, a concept or an event so much that you can't move forward, you know, it, it places you in non-action. Yeah, I mean, the classic example there is um, Hamlet, you know, Shakespeare's Hamlet, who gets paralyzed by inaction. All he wants to do is to avenge the death of his father, but he gets caught in this introspective spiral, which means he can't move to action. There's no, nothing to precipitate things out. And that produces a kind of melancholia in him. And, you know, that is perhaps one definition of depression. You know, it's the inability to act. Um, you know, those people who can't get up in the morning are depressed because they can't act and they are dwelling on their own uh, position in the world. So, uh, you know, I think it's true that there are uh, there are potential dangers of that notion of uh, thinking too much. But I think there's a difference to be made between dwelling on things, on worrying about things, and thinking, on the other hand. Because for me, worrying is to be trapped between thinking and doing, whereas real thinking isn't like that. Thinking, for me, is the prerequisite for action. You know, I'm thinking these things through in order to do something not in order to be mired in our, another set of questions. So I think that's, you know, that's a really important distinction to make, you know, the difference between dwelling on things on the one hand, the worrying, and thinking on the other. But for me, thinking is not, um, you know, not a passive activity. It's, it's the beginning of action, and that's what it always needs to be. And, and indeed, most of the great uh, philosophers in history have, have you know, thought in order to produce action. And I, I guess... Um, Maybe the best quote here is that from Marx, who says, uh, you know, philosophers tend to interpret the world. The point is to change it. So I'm very much in favor of that. And, and when it comes to reflecting on yourself, I think the point of that is to reflect on oneself in order to be able to make positive changes and act in ways which will be beneficial to the self and to others. So, that, is um, 
I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that is a perfect segue to go out to our first break. And we are here today with Robert Roland Smith, who is Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio's philosopher in residence today. I'm happy to share. And we will be right back. This is Lisa Cypress Cayman broadcasting today from Sundance Resort at Sundance, Utah. And we will be back and we will continue this dialogue about philosophy and, and keeping philosophy in our hearts and minds as we experience our day-to-day lives, that see, seeing the preciousness in the little moments and the little things. And that's what Robert Roland Smith has so eloquently shared in his books. And uh, we will be right back. Here come the tunes. know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity we'll be right back to explain how on harvesting happiness with lisa cypress Cayman on toginet.com a part of the grateful good grateful nation brings together patients families friends and staff of beth israel deaconess medical center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the medical center Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt and learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Craig Deswalt is the creator of the Rock Star System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from the competition. Each high-energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the Rockstar Marketing Boot Camps, check out the website, CraigDuswalt.com, so you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field, so more people come to you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Craig Duswalt. Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Tugginet.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Cayman on Tugginet. The show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Hence the name of the show. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Tugginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here today with Robert Roland Smith, who is a philosopher, an author, and we are sharing thoughts about living the contemplative life in daily action. You know, while we're on our way to the grocery store, in line at the gas station, or driving on the highway. Welcome back, Robert, with a cold. Hi. 
<laughs> Thanks for joining us again. And um, before we went out on the break, we were speaking about self-reflection. And now that uh, we're coming back, let's, let's just get right on to happiness, because this is a, a very excellent source of many philosophical discussions, starting with the ancients, Aristotle for one, who said, know thyself. Yeah, that's right. Well, the other person I was thinking of was Nietzsche, um, German philosopher of the 19th century. And uh, what I write about in the book Breakfast with, with Socrates is how Nietzsche can improve your daily commute. Now, that sounds like a bit of a stretch, but bear me out. Um, a lot of people on their way to work in the morning uh, use that time to daydream a bit. Uh, you know, if they're behind the wheel of a car or they're on a bus or on a train or whatever it might be. And uh, they will start to kind of fantasize about uh, the life they might prefer to be living, the person they'd like to be kissing, the money they'd like to earn, the prize they'd like to win, and so on. It's a very rich time for fantasy. And, uh, of course, fantasy is usually about the things that would make us happy. You know, if only I lived on that desert island, I would be happy. You know, if only I won the lottery, I'd be happy. So a lot of us think about our happiness, I think, um, quite a lot, particularly on this commute to work. Now, that's fine, except what Nietzsche would say about that is that what we're doing there is uh, separating real life from our ideal life. So we have the real life we live, which is commuting, and it's dirty, and it's tiring, and it's grubby, and it takes time, and all the rest of it. And there's this other life that we imagine. So he talks about the doctrine of two worlds, the real world that we actually live, and the ideal world where we think we'll be happy. And he says this is a mistake. We shouldn't separate the world into these two things, the ideal and the real. What he says effectively is that we need to make our, not just our ideal a reality, but make our reality ideal. And his challenge is, you know, if, if it's happiness that you're pursuing, you need to live every single day and every single moment in such a way that you'd be prepared to have it repeated eternally. And now, there are very few of us who can say that, right, on a daily basis. There are very few you know, things that we want to do again and again and again. It's a kind of psychological groundhog day, a groundhog day of the soul. <laughs> but that, uh, you know, that is his challenge, and I think it's a very good one. So it's, in a way, he's saying stop fantasizing about your happiness and start living it. Uh, and I think that's an important message for us because uh, happiness doesn't have to always exist somewhere over the rainbow. You know, it can exist right here, right now. Now, what are the things, you know, you can do right here, right now that uh, can make that happiness come alive? Well, I think you make a spectacular point, and one that we speak of every week on this show, is that uh -huh. happiness is not conditional in that life is dirty, it has a lot of complications and adversity, and how are we going to be with ourselves in those moments? Because we can't fight off some of these adverse conditions, so how can we embrace little moments of joy as we travel the adventure of life? And it's, it's making happiness. You know, we, can, we make love, we, we, we make money, why not make happiness? Yeah, no, exactly. And the other kind of um, aspect of happiness I was thinking about is that Although, yes, happiness needs to be in the moment, we've got to remember that a lot of happiness comes from anticipating something good as well as looking back on something good. In other words, I think happiness takes place in three time zones, not just in the present, which is that Nietzschean idea, but also in the past and also in the future. So if you 
think about, um, I, know, I don't know, an event that you're going to be going to or a party or something like that, or seeing um, you know, a long-lost relative that you're dying to see or you know, greeting your partner as they get off the plane. You're looking forward, aren't you? And I think happiness has a genuine uh, you know, place in anticipation, you know, the anticipation of something good which makes us happy. And that's not wrong. Just because the, the event itself hasn't arrived yet doesn't, make, doesn't undermine that happiness. And equally, I think a lot of us can be happy looking back. Um, and I'm not talking about wallowing in nostalgia, but simply remembering things that have made you happy in the past. I mean, you know, happiness has a, has a half-life. You know, it continues after a while. And you talk about harvesting happiness. Well, that harvest, I think, can continue for many years through the faculty of memory. And, uh, you know, both, both memory and anticipation are extraordinary human gifts uh, that allow happiness to multiply outside of the present moment. So I think you can think about it in those terms as well, three forms of happiness, past, present, and future. Well, I love the way you refer to it as the three time zones, or three time zones of joy, if you will, because the savoring of memories is something that is very, very powerful, you know, that one can draw upon at any time, especially when you're having a hard time to recall a positive emotion, a positive connection, and certainly planning for the future is a huge part of people's success as they harvest happiness, as they learn to cultivate greater joy, which is setting the intentions to create positive uh, actions and moments in the future, and certainly allowing ourselves to really um, savor the moment. What, what, what yeah. we're doing in the here and now is is essential, and I think that is very, very valuable. The three time zones of joy. I, I, I love that. I um, Last week, my daughter graduated from junior high school. Kayla yeah. is uh, my young uh, cinematographer that worked with me on H-Factor, Where Is Your Heart, the documentary. She is now uh -huh. going to be 14. And the principal of her school, when he delivered his address started off by wishing the children that they are never to work a day in their life, that they are to discover their passions and anything they choose to do should feel like play. Now, that doesn't negate that it requires hard work and diligence to achieve goals and success, but I think we get what he's saying, and it's very much in keeping with what you're sharing here today about, you know, it, it not making your, um, your fantasies more of your reality. Yeah. I think there's one uh, caveat, one proviso, one word of caution I'd throw in, which is this idea of pursuing happiness. Now, of course, in the United States, the pursuit of happiness is you know, taken extremely seriously, but, um, uh, which is kind of ironic in a way, because the, you know, it's, the pursuit of happiness ought to be a happy pursuit, and it's often a very serious pursuit. So, you know, Americans tend to pursue happiness with great seriousness. So there's a bit of a paradox there. But um, the other point, I think, is that if you uh, think of happiness as something to pursue, it suggests it's out there in the future. And uh, therefore, as much as it's something you can get hold of and can achieve, it's also something that you can fail to achieve because any pursuit necessarily involves the possibility of not capturing the thing you're pursuing, right? Indeed. So I think... Um, you know, we need to, I think, uh, overcome this notion of pursuing happiness because it can create a sense of lack, a sense of emptiness. You know, you, you, only want to, you only pursue happiness if you sense a gap in happiness, whereas I think uh, a lot of happiness can 
come about almost by accident, as it were. So we, it, as well as making happiness happen, which risks it never happening and filling us with a sense of emptiness, I think the other side to it is letting happiness happen. You know, you've got to make space for the unexpected, for something wonderful to kind of intervene in your life without you planning for it. So uh, I think there's an important balance there between the pursuit of happiness on the one hand and the letting happiness happen on the other. And after all, the very word happiness is related to the word happen and happenstance. It's related to the idea of chance. So uh, no, let happiness happen, I would, uh, I would say, is a pretty good motto to add alongside the pursuit of happiness. I agree with you. And the interesting thing about happiness is it is just there. It, it, it exists along with all of the other emotions, positive and negative, out in the world. Yeah. But it is the byproduct. It is, it is not the destination. It is what happens along the way or a yeah. way of choosing to be in the world. And this is a difficult concept for some people to understand because it places them uh, the responsibility, the, the, uh, the outcome solely in their hands. Yeah. I just read, I don't know if you know it, there's uh, a book by a Turkish novelist, the Nobel Prize winner, Orhan Pamuk. Uh, it's called The Museum of Innocence. It's a wonderful novel, kind of Proustian in its flavor. And uh, what he realizes, what the narrator realizes, is that happiness can only be realized in retrospect. So it talks about two minutes in his life where he was uh, making love with his illicit lover in this apartment in Istanbul when he's in his early 20s. And he realizes those two minutes were the happiest moment of his life, but he can only see it in retrospect. So there's something about happiness waiting to come into view, waiting to be seen, and then sort of seen first in your peripheral vision before you see it as a whole. And I find that a fascinating idea. And again, it plays to this idea that we shouldn't just pursue happiness in this rather dogged fashion, but we can also allow it to either sneak up on us in the present or come back to us from the past when we realize that we were happy at a certain point. Well, it is elusive. You know, it is somewhat like a butterfly happiness. You know, it floats yeah. around, it comes in and out. It's not a constant condition. And I, I think that's probably a good thing. I think it's unrealistic to uh, expect one's life to be in a state of happiness all the time. And conversely, to expect one's life to be in a state of unhappiness or sadness the entire time. Because yeah, that's right. And of course, uh, I mean, happiness, I mean, the, you know, it can sound like a bit of a glib condition sometimes. It can sound rather lacking in nuance, lacking in texture, lacking in a sense of, you know, irony or depth and so on. All those good things that we Europeans who wear black like to, uh, you know, take very seriously. <laughs> We're going to go to a break, and when we come back, I would, I would like to stay on the subject matter of the word happiness, because what comes to mind when I present my work all the time, because I use the name happiness in my business, is this you know, yellow smiley face, which really mm. is not the accurate representation of what we're talking about here, that we're really talking about well-being, thriving, flourishing, uh, living in an expansive state rather than a contracted one. So we'll, we will be right back. We'll continue the conversation with Robert Roland Smith. You can find his work and him at www.robertrolandsmith.com. We'll be right back. 
We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cyphers Cayman on Toginet.com. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. The trick to getting published with your host, Florence Blake. Friday nights at 9, 8 central on toginet.com. Flo has seen it, done it, and now can share from her experiences as a newspaper staff reporter, feature writer, freelance editor, and college writing instructor. And now Flo has authored a system whereby her students enjoy a 90% success rate in attaining publication of their manuscripts for the first time. In just four years, she has over 800 of her own articles published in national magazines, newspapers, and anthologies. Author of several books, including the powerful memoir, The Sicilian Nobleman's Daughter, Florence has advised and edited professors, deans, PhDs, and hundreds of students' writings before submission. And now it's your turn. Join us Friday nights with your questions. Most of Flo's students say they've learned much and thoroughly enjoyed the journey. It's the trick to getting published with your host, Flo Blake. Friday nights at 9, 8 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet. The show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Hence the name of the show. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back, everybody. I'm coming to you today from magnificent Sundance, Utah, here at the Sundance Resort, where we are planning our upcoming Harvesting Happiness for Heroes workshop. And I'm welcoming back our guest, Robert Roland Smith, who is a philosopher. He's also uh, now known to us here as a Euroman. He advised us he uh, changed into his black polo neck, black jeans, black cape, and has pulled out his French cigarette to share with us the Euroman's view of happiness. Welcome back, Robert. Welcome. Thank you very much. Yes, well, I'm now, I've shifted locations to Paris, and I'm now in a, a cafe in the 1950s. So I've also shifted through time as well as location. <laughs> it's those three time zones of happiness, you know? It's exactly. A... <laughs> exactly. 
We were talking before the break about the word happiness and what a light and fluffy, airy word it is that that really possesses such a a deep meaning. So I'm wondering if you as the philosopher can comment on the word happiness. Yeah, I mean, um, it does conjure up images of a yellow smiley face, doesn't it? And it can suggest something rather infantile. And yet, of course, we know lots of people who are perfectly happy being miserable. Uh, I think of a, a book by um, a man called Slavoj Zizek, an unpronounceable name, but he uh, he's written a book called Enjoy Your Symptom. And uh, what he's talking about there, as a lot of psychoanalysts talk about, is the way, in fact, a lot of people derive happiness from unhappiness because they get stuck in a pattern of kind of misery. But in fact, uh, that pattern provides some sort of consolation. So there's some weird things going on there. And um, I also think of this, uh, I'm very interested in a psycho- psychologist, psychotherapist, German man called Bert Hellinger. And uh, my favorite quote from him is that resolution is harder to bear than suffering. So in other words, people would often rather stay in their state of unhappiness than shift to happiness because the act of transformation, the process of resolution, um, divests you of all those things with which you're most comfortable. You know, so we get used to telling, us, t- telling ourselves stories about ourselves, about you know, why we weren't our parents' favorite, for example, or you know, why it is we're always unlucky. You know, we, we develop these myths and narratives about ourselves that we then cleave to as though they are the truth. But often they're not. And when it's pointed out that they're not, we cling on to them regardless because they're part of our identity. Sometimes we define ourselves negative, negatively. And that definition is consoling, even though it's uh, not positive. So I think, um, you know, there is the yellow shiny face of happiness. But there's also the kind of the shadow over that, people who are unhappy in their uh, that people who are happy in their unhappiness, who kind of love their misery. And then I think there's a third kind of happiness, which is, I think you mentioned it before, it's to do with, uh, you know, flourishing, contentment, um, expansiveness. It's opening rather than closing. Now, those things don't have to involve the rather, you know, trite notion that happiness can sometimes imply. They're simply, um, they're simply an expression of people uh, well, I mean, since we're now in a French cafe, I'll use a French expression. Uh, they're an expression of being bien dans sa peau, which is a French phrase you may know, which means good in one's skin. You feel well in your skin. Bien dans sa peau. Uh, and it means you're simply there where you should be. You're placed in the world. You know uh, that there is some sense of resolution about you. Uh, and it's an almost, uh, it sounds weird, it's an almost spatial thing. I mean, you just know that you are in your right place, and you don't wish you were somewhere else. And I think that third definition of happiness, again, takes some of the slightly facile shininess off the yellow face that we sometimes see. Well, I think what you've just shared really is brilliant, um, in that uh, people sometimes are happy in their misery because uh, there's a sense of winning is losing. You know, once they've conquered their demons, they've lost because then they've got to go find another set. That's right. Yes, there's a kind of theory of equal worry. Have you heard that? That that we all have, you know, we're all content to have a certain amount, say 20% anxiety level, and that uh, we'll do whatever we can to maintain that anxiety level. So if we're anxious now about buying a new house, say, 
we buy the new house and it's all fine. So then we become anxious about buying, you know, getting the next job. You know, so the important thing there is maintaining the anxiety level. In fact, it's something Freud talks about a lot. He says, what drives the psyche more than anything else is the desire for equilibrium, you know, for basically an inertia. Yes. So um, even, you know, anxiety levels are things we'll try and maintain, um, although ostensibly they're not good for us. Well, there is a certain amount of anxiety that, that is good for us, the anxiety that puts yeah. us in a place of challenge where we can... Um, in a, in a healthy way, challenge ourselves to, to grow and shift and, and transform. And I think that is a, a key to living a successful, joyful life in recognizing that in order to find happiness or contentment or to thrive in a dynamic way, we must continue to uh, allow for change and shift and to expand ourselves, to be in that state of openness. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think sometimes um, finding challenge can be hard. I and mean, for a start, it's pretty hard to challenge yourself because, you know, how do you change, uh, change yourself with a tool that you are yourself? I mean, that's a central <laughs> paradox there, you know. Um, and I think this is a, actually a role that friends have. Now, um, again, being a European, uh, I know that friends can often be pretty challenging uh, over here. I don't know if it's the case uh, so much in the United States, you can tell me, but I think friends, true friends, are people who do challenge you rather than simply affirm you all the time. I mean, really, you want friends to be both. You want affirmation from them. But you do need some challenge because, after all, who else is going to provide that? And uh, we need, as much as we need self-reflection, we do need people we can trust around us who can reflect on ourselves for us. And I think this is particularly uh, the case I mean, you know that experience of, I don't know, going to have lunch with somebody who you haven't seen for, say, six months or even a year, and you see them, and immediately you can detect the shift in their psychic weather. I mean, you know whether they're kind of better or worse than they were last time, if they are, you know, more anxious, less anxious. But, you know, it's an almost visceral uh, reading that you can get of somebody after a gap of time. And I think that is very precious information, we, you know, too rarely shared. Uh, you know, we normally say, oh, you know, hi, it's great to see you, you're looking well, and so on. We tend to be rather bland sometimes with our friendship. And yet, I think friends are a critical resource in this uh, pursuit or non-pursuit of happiness, precisely because they can, at the best of times, provide the constructive criticism or challenge that you're talking about. Mm, I agree with you. And, and they are our mirrors. You know, the people with whom yeah. we choose to surround ourselves is, is, a, is a mirror, a reflection of, of, our, of what's going on inside. So if you are constantly, you know, surrounded by negativity, you might want to check in with yourself and see if there's a, a component within that is, that, is, that is part of that story. Um, yeah. And conversely, the same I would say for people who are essentially uh, living joyful, positive lives. And I think um, the more work we do, the more likely we are to turn up surrounded by like-minded people, not carbon copies of ourselves. Yeah. Yes, perish um, the thought. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. I was just thinking of that movie. Do you know that movie being John Malkovich, where everybody in the world is the same as him? So he opens a, a room at a party, and everybody else in the room is, is John Malkovich. I mean, oh, it, no. I know. And the thought of, you know, walking down the street and everybody I meet is me. I mean, it would be, um, 
Well, it would be a disaster for the world, the future of the world, and the planet would clearly go downhill very quickly. I mean, there's that. That's boring. Yeah, a little bit yeah, boring. Bo- boring and paranoia-inducing. Well, let, let's talk about uh, something that we were also chatting about on the break, and that is this concept of midlife juiciness or ripeness. Because yeah. this is something, you know, I'm in my, I'm in my mid, in my mid forties, and you know, tipping toward the other side. Oh my! And yeah. uh, I, I find myself looking at life, really relishing, you know, where I'm at. The, uh, yeah. and, and I'm not talking about sort of the external adversities and day in and day out stuff of life, but just the internal space. And yeah. I, and I and I get the sense from you and speaking with you that you you're at the same same location. Maybe different coordinates, but same place, basically. No, I, I'm actually only 17, but I, I'm just very mature and wise for my age. That's Bravo. <laughs> you know, so yeah. you get to wear the Speedo then, because that was yeah. the part of the conversation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Speedo or Mankini. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, uh, I'll put my cards on the table. I'm 46, so I'm probably, you know, on the same edge of the slope as you are. Yep, exactly. And, yeah, and there is... Um, I mentioned Shakespeare before, he's on my mind. He says ripeness is all, doesn't he, in King Lear. And there is a kind of sappiness and a ripeness uh, that comes at this age because you're looking, you know, you've you've got enough experience to be able to uh, draw on and you're you're still young enough to be able to do stuff. You're not quite, you know, decrepit yet. So it's quite, you know, you're at the kind of noonday, aren't you, of your your life. And, uh, in fact, Nietzsche writes about this again. He talks about, um, you know, the noon noonday of your being and how important it is to kind of look back on your life and look forward. And I think the looking forward is, is particularly critical for people of our sort of age because I think a lot of midlife crisis comes about because people don't have a positive future image of themselves. And because they don't have a positive future image of themselves, they tend to become overly nostalgic about how they were in the past. So for men, typically, you know, they end up buying a sports car, which is more appropriate for a 20-year-old, or they start dating a trophy girlfriend that's 20 years younger and so on. And uh, I think a lot of that is a symptom of the fact that, you know, we don't often spend enough time constructing positive images of what it means to be 60 or 70 or 80 and so on. And that's partly because, you know, we've never lived so long before. You know, we, we haven't had to populate the inner landscape of the mind with images of kind of cool, interesting older people, because all the cool, interesting people tend to be younger. But I think that that's shifting, and we'll have that to shift as, as, the, as the demography shifts, you know. We are going to go to a break, and I would like to stay on this concept of aging happily, because I have some definite thoughts on this, you know, based on the work that I have done with older people. And I have a theory about dementia that is uh, probably going to be very helpful for us all. This is Lisa Cypress-Kame, and I'm here with Robert Roland Smith. And we are going to continue the conversation about philosophy and joy after the tunes. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cyphers-Kamen on Toginet.com. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman. 
on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Grateful Good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the medical center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet. The show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Hence the name of the show. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here today with Robert Roland Smith, a philosopher, an author, and before the break, we were talking about happiness and aging, and specifically happiness and dementia. Welcome back, Robert. Hi. Hi. Well, do you remember the rest of your name? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I don't, but I have aged during that break. <laughs> we all have. We all have. We've yeah. gone a couple minutes older. Um, I, I, I do work with older people, and I also work with older people's families, both the caregivers and, and family members. And yeah. uh, I, I think that as one ages um, and becomes less aware of time and space, you know, every day gets to be a new day. And I think yeah. that for the older person, that is uh, a good thing. And what's difficult is the caregiver and the loved one that suffers because their vision of who that person is or was is no longer present. Yeah. Yeah, it's very tough, isn't it? It's very tough. And we know dementia, I I think, is one of the fastest growing conditions or diseases, if that's the right word for it, in the world right now. Not surprising because um, people are getting older. And, um, you know, it puts carers in a tough position because, um, you know, they're virtuous, good people. Um, but often, you know, they're increasingly unrecognized by the person they're giving care to. And uh, in fact, I mean, I have a, you may know this, I have a column in the Sunday Times, which is a British newspaper, um, every week on moral dilemmas. And one woman emailed me recently to say, uh, you know, she goes to see her uh, relative with dementia every week, I think it is. But of course, the relative doesn't recognize her anymore. Uh, I literally have no idea who it is. Uh, when she turns up. So her question to me was, you know, is it ethical for her to stop visiting this relative with dementia? Because, you know, at one level, 
that person has absolutely no cognizance of her visits whatsoever. Doesn't recognise who it is, doesn't remember that she's been, uh, and so on. Despite the fact that they've, uh, you know, they've been related for years and years. And of course, I scratched my head about this. And uh, I mean, at one level, I think people will continue to give care because it's an act of conscience. So, in other words, not giving care makes you feel guilty. Uh, you know, even if the person you're visiting doesn't remember you, doesn't recall you. But is that a strong enough motive? Uh, and, you know, maybe it isn't. And I think my conclusion on it was, you know, let's not underestimate the brain's cognitive faculties. Even somebody with dementia may still have somewhere, subliminally, at some base level, some kind of apprehension of what's going on around them. You know, even if it's after the fact. You know, we were talking earlier about how certain things become clearer only later. I think, uh, you know, we can't, uh, you know, we can't write off the fact that even people with dementia, at some level, at some kind of, maybe at the soul level, at some level, are still appreciating that visit. So I think, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that makes the relationship any easier. I'm not saying that caring is not a tough call on your kind of moral as well as your social and practical self. But I think, um, you know, there is still a sense in which, you know, dementia doesn't mean a complete uh, absence of, uh, of recognition. I agree with you. That's very, very well articulated. Um, and you bring us to another point. You do many things. You wear many hats. In, in addition to being a philosopher and an author, writer, you uh, work with large corporations. And I would love for you to share with our listeners what you do in these places. How do you get big business to listen to uh, what you have to say? And I'm sure they're enchanted by it, as, as we all are. Well, if you string a rope up the side of a skyscraper and climb up it and bang on the boardroom window, people do eventually take notice of you. So that's, that's my chief sales tactic. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, um, I mean, I got into it because I, I had moved from London to L.A. and I wanted a change. I lived in L.A. for a couple of years. I wanted a change. I'd been in Oxford Don for 10 years already at that point, And I wanted to do something much more in the real world, quotes, unquote, and so I uh, ended up taking a job with a consultancy firm there and then with its subsidiary back in London, which is where I am now. And the work I do has always been uh, not, the, uh, not the end of consultancy, which is all about financial modeling or economic forecasting and so on. It's the end of consultancy, which is more about um, helping senior executives, boards, senior management teams to have better conversations about strategy, about purpose, about organizational shape, about organizational culture. So that's really the role I play. It's less going in and giving the technical answer and more working alongside senior managers to try and help them figure out the answer. So it's, if you like, it has a little bit of an overlap with what it means to be a therapist or something like that in a personal setting. Uh, but that's effectively what I, what I do. Um, because, I mean, the truth is a lot of senior management teams, a lot of boards find it quite hard to have constructive conversations, constructive meetings, because of the personality politics in the room. Um, mm-hmm. And often things aren't said that should be said. Uh, there's kind of implicit bullying going on. Um, you know, obvious facts aren't stated because they'd be embarrassing to the chief executive officer and so on. I think my role, if, if you like, is to play the... Um, 
play the kind of naive, innocent bystander who sort of mentions the unmentionable because I'm an outsider and I can. You know, I'm not going to get sacked for that, whereas the other people in the room might be. Uh, and I think that's a very valuable thing in business. I mean, we talked earlier about holding up the mirror to your friends and how useful feedback and criticism and challenge can be in that personal setting. Well, I think, you know, just as much, if not more so, in a business setting, somebody that goes in and says, hang on a minute, you're talking about acquiring a new business, but frankly, the last acquisition you made was a complete disaster. You know, somebody who actually names those truths can be very useful. You know, it's, it kind of releases the tension. It makes, uh, you know, it makes, you know, honest conversation happen. And with that, some action can follow. So that's really what I do. And I would think with your scholarly knowledge and your wit and your Euroman uh, costume, it's a very uh, successful mix, no doubt. It's a, it's a potent, it's a bizarre uh, combination, that's right. Um, I mean, I don't usually draw explicitly on, you know, philosophy or history of ideas very much. You know, I, it's very rare that in the boardroom I'll say, you know, on, by, by the way, you know, Hegel says this about the future of the economy. <laughs> um, but what... <laughs> What I do do is draw upon the uh, the tools of thinking that uh, you know I've been given through reading philosophy and psychoanalysis and all of that. So it's those kind of conceptual frameworks that really help, rather than the content of them. And um, and I think I can just about get away with that. But, you know, I mean, most senior executives have pretty limited attention span when it comes to uh, you know things like you know psychoanalysis. Of course. Well, you're repackaging it, and you're putting it into languaging that they can hear, I would yeah, say. Exactly. That's what I, I believe is going on. We are closing in on our hour, and I want to titillate our listeners, no pun intended, with a chapter in your book, Breakfast with Socrates, because you actually write about sex and philosophy. And I would love for you to give a little teaser to the folks uh, of what they might find in Breakfast with Socrates, for example. Oh, I'm far too British to be able to do that, especially it's tea time here in London. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> try, I, I have try. no idea how repressed I am. You know, it's the time for tea and scones, not talk about sex. But anyway, I'll have a, I'll have a go. Um, I'll I just share a quick story with you from, I think, a beautiful story from Socrates. You know we have this expression in English about finding your other half. Well, uh, Socrates says this goes back to the idea that Originally, all human beings were one, you know, and we were spherical, we were round, and we had male genitals on one side and female on the other, and four arms and four legs. But then Zeus, the god, got really jealous of these creatures because they were so literally rounded, and cut us all in half in order to kind of uh, suppress and control some of our power, harbor. And ever since, We've been trying to get back to our other half. So sexual difference is about closing in again and literally uh, finding the soulmate that you were once attached to. And the sexual urge is effectively, and this sounds very bizarre, maybe a good way to end the show, the sexual urge is really a desire to have sex with yourself. I mean, it's the kind of Woody Allen-ish thought, isn't it? But um, I mean, that's, in a sense, what we're trying to do. It's about an experience of sameness rather than different. You know, we talk about the other half, but this other is actually us. So what we're looking, what we're looking for in sex is to complete our gratification or our self-enclosedness uh, at the service of somebody, somebody other who is, in fact, who we already were. So there's a thought for... Um, 
a thought for a Wednesday afternoon. A fabulous uh, hump day thought for a Wednesday afternoon. And, uh, you know, you, you make a, a lovely quote at the beginning of Breakfast with Socrates uh, by Annie Dillard, who wrote The Writing Life. And she says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And I think that is the note to end on um, about the uh, work that you do is about making us realize to pay. we need to pay attention. You know, we need to uh, just be aware, be aware that the days are pre- precious and that is where life lives, is in the days. I hope that you'll come back and join us again. Speedo, Euroman suit, with or without cigarette, you've been an absolute joy. And um, I would love to have you back in the coming months and carry on our conversation. So will you come back, Robert? I, I will, Lisa. May I, say, oh. I, hope you, I hope you age as gracefully and beautifully as I currently am. Yes, I, I am, and I'm intending to continue to do so. So our show is now drawing to an end, and here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice, to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. And to reach Robert Roland Smith, you may do so at his website, www.robertroland, and that's R O W L A N D, Smith, S M I T H, dot com. Would you be willing to give out an email address where someone could write you, Robert? Uh, well, it's exactly the same, Robert Roland Smith at Mac.com, M A C. Wonderful. Uh, Thank you for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and Robert Roland Smith wishing you kind thoughts, kind words, and the kindest actions. Remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. We will be back next week with more of the greatest thinkers and doers in the world of joy, thriving, well-being, happiness, with or without the yellow smiley face. And um, please stay in tune. Reach out to our websites, www.hh4heroes.org. That's our nonprofit that is serving the veteran community recovering from combat stress. And here we go. Here come the tunes. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Robert. Feel better. Thank you for being a part of Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. We'll do this again next Wednesday morning at 10, 11 Central here on Togedown.